0: that's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto, and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media, so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the RV. Today we are headed to Washington, D.C. to speak with Catherine Mumphrey. Catherine is a business and strategy advisor and consultant, her memoir not there yet, is out now. So Catherine, welcome
2: to the RV. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yes, I'm super happy, uh, Catherine, that you are on the RV today. And you mentioned you are an expert in Egyptian street food. Yes. (laughs)
2: Yes. Uh, After living in Egypt for four years, I feel like I have developed a bit of an expertise for all things Egyptian street food. That's right. And what is your favorite Egyptian dish? That is a tough question to answer, uh, but I think I'll go with something that I don't think many people in the U.S. have heard of before, but is very delicious. It's called fatir, which is often described as an Egyptian pancake, although it actually tastes quite different from a pancake. It's a bit more of like a doughy, sweet, or savory bread that is a little bit more of like a, a Danish than it is like a pancake, but you can put many different toppings on it. Uh, my personal favorite is Nutella and banana. We used to get that a lot very late at night uh, after when we were coming back from you know going out, but you can also get it with cheese and like savory things as well, but it's a really, really delicious dish. It's something that you can get you know, kind of, again, street food, so you can get it to go from like little vendors. And I don't, I've never heard of it in the U.S., but it is one of my favorites.
1: Oh, my mouth is watering now. (laughs) 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 And Catherine, you were born in New York and you moved to Palm Coast, Florida, and yet you somehow ended up living in Egypt for four years. So how did that come about?
2: That's a great question. Uh, There's a lot of details in the book about the answer to that question, but uh, I start the book, so the book is sort of centered around three dates. And the first date that you encounter in the book in the first chapter is 9-11, 2001, when I was a freshman in high school. And that event was obviously a momentous one for many people, both in the US and around the world for a number of different reasons. But I tell my very personal story of that day and how I reacted to it. And While there were a lot of people in my town that reacted, I think in the way some people in the US reacted, which was from a place of fear and eventually some, uh, I would say misplaced hatred for people that they didn't understand, I had a very different reaction, which was to just try to understand everything I could about the Middle East. And through a series of events, I ended up majoring in Middle Eastern studies in college and chose to study Arabic in this quest to just understand as much as I could. And that eventually led me to studying abroad in Cairo. And at the end of that semester, I just felt like I. It wasn't enough. I needed to learn more, and since I graduated in 2008, when there were very few jobs in America, it felt like a good time to take what was supposed to be a gap year and go back to Egypt. And of course, that gap year turned into four years. Four years, and you learned how to speak Arabic. I did. I would say I'm no, by no means fluent, but I did study formal Arabic for three years when I was in college, and then. As anyone who has studied formal Arabic knows, if you go to an actual Middle Eastern country that speaks Arabic, the Arabic that is spoken is nothing like what you learn in the classroom. And I tell this story about how in the book about um, the first time I was on the flight to Cairo when I was going to study abroad, and my Arabic teacher had warned me that Egyptian Arabic was not going to sound like anything I had learned in the classroom, and I like, okay, yeah, sure. I'm sure it'll sound somewhat fit. Like for sure. I'm going to like pick up some words here or there. And I remember listening to these two, uh, like to some conversations that different Egyptians were having on the plane. And I literally thought that I had been like, someone had played a joke on me that I was learning Arabic, but I was actually not learning Arabic because Egyptian Arabic just sounds so different from formal Arabic. So in the four years i lived there though i did pick up egyptian arabic enough to like understand i would say 70% of what my husband talks about with his in- with my in-laws and 30% which is still uh, a mystery so that's a lot 70% I'm probably being generous with my estimation of how much I understand, um, but it's, I would say I'm proficient at both formal and uh, Egyptian Arabic.
1: I lived in Middle East for four years, and I only picked it up a few words myself. So how difficult was it to learn a language with a completely different alphabet than
2: yours? Uh, impossible is the answer to that question. <laughs> I, you know, I, I didn't study very seriously as another language growing up and I took a little bit of French in high school, but not anything very sophisticated. And I am by no means one of those gifted people who just picks up languages. So for me, learning Arabic was probably the hardest thing I ever took in, in, in school. And it—I mean—it felt like a foreign language because it was. But like you mentioned, it's in a different script. It's written from right to left, not left to right. The books open a different way because of that. And a lot of the sounds in the alphabet are not sounds that exist in any uh, Germanic language. They're just very unique to Arabic. And, and there's some, a couple other languages that um, share some of those sounds, like Farsi and, and Hebrew, but there were, those were also not languages I was in any way familiar with. So learning like new sounds as well as new script and new words, it it was a a new grammar. I mean, it was really, it was basically impossible. Um, and I will say until I moved to Egypt and, and just was absorbing the language all the time, it really just felt like a a very big task that I had assigned myself, uh, for no reason really. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was just so uh, curious to learn more that I just, I kept at it for the entirety of the time I was in college.
1: I can imagine the stories you're telling in the book.
2: Yes, there there are a a number of instances where my uh, deficiencies with the Arabic language caused some interesting hiccups. Um, Although there were, you know, every once in a while you'd stumble upon a word that actually was quite similar. So one story I tell is actually, I don't even know if I tell this story in the book, but it's one of my favorite stories of a time where I was struggling. And then it actually was quite easy. I was going to a corner store to get like corner grocery store to get, um, aluminum foil. And I'm like trying to explain to the shop owner. Oh. And one other thing to understand about a lot of these stores in Egypt is they don't have a lot of big grocery stores where you like walk the aisles to get food. It's more of like a mini grocery store where most of the stuff is behind the counter. So you have to ask the shopkeeper to get the thing. So which forces you to learn uh, many words very, very quickly. Otherwise uh, the only things you can buy are things, you know, the Arabic words for. So I was trying to get aluminum foil and I go into the store to like, I was like cooking something. I think I was cooking, like baking something. And I was trying to explain the shop owner what I was looking for. And I was like, I'm looking for like silver paper. That was how I described aluminum foil. I was trying to, and he goes, And then I'm like, yeah, you know, you use it with like a shisha or use it to cook. And he looks at me and he goes, aluminium. And I was like, yes, aluminium. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Just basically the English word. So there were some times like that where it was actually painfully simple and I was making it much more complicated because I was struggling to get the language across.
1: And Catherine, you met your husband in Egypt. So I did. How, how did you to meet?
2: So I actually met him when I was studying abroad. So I studied abroad in the spring of 2007. And then I went back to NYU to finish my degree. And then I moved back in the summer of 2008. And we met actually like almost the first week of school. Although I don't totally remember it because I was so overwhelmed with new university, all these people, like figuring out where classes were, but we did meet the first week of, of class. He remembers us, I don't remember meeting him till a few weeks later, but I had joined this student-run organization on campus while I was studying abroad, and he was in it, and so we had met, we talked a little bit, and then towards the end of the semester when I was getting ready to leave. Um, and, and he was not picking up the subtle hints that I was giving him throughout the semester that I might be interested in him. Uh, I just, again, we, we have different opinions of how this happened. I, uh, my opinion is that I sort of suggested that we go out together. He maintains that he, in fact, it was his idea and he asked me out on a date, but we went on a date with a couple other, uh, friends and, um, And that was kind of that actually. I mean, we went on one date. I thought that we would never see each other when I was going to leave. I was leaving six weeks later after that first date and thought, okay, this is going to be like a fun study abroad fling that I'll talk about with my friends. It'll be like one of those fun stories. I tell my kids when I'm older and when I got back to NYU, he just kept talking to me and I kept talking back and, um, We did the long distance for a year until I moved back and that was kind of it. That was it. So it was um, uh, a lot more of a life commitment that I was expecting at 19 when I was studying abroad in a foreign country, but he really allowed me to appreciate Cairo and Egypt both during my study abroad time and when I lived there for the four years in a way that I think would have been really challenging had I not been able to see Egypt and Cairo through his eyes and, and also just be able to relax a little bit and enjoy the experience. Cause I, I think for a lot of people who've lived abroad, you know, there's just, there's a lot of stress that goes on in like living in a country you don't understand or uh, are not familiar with. And so he allowed me to just kind of like relax that kind of that part of the stress that I was sort of a constant in my time there and just really kind of see the culture for what it was. This
1: is the best way to understand the culture of a country
2: 100 percent, and it doesn't mean you need to understand you need to get married to someone to understand the culture I think that's a tall order but I think you know having friends having different kinds of relationships colleagues etc for sure is like a, a really great way to understand like to really understand the culture
0: So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: And your memoir, not there yet, is out now. It is. Can you tell us what you hope readers will take away from reading your story?
2: That's a great question. You know, there are, I think, a lot, a few different pieces that I hope people take away. I think... The, the biggest one, which was really the motivation for writing the book, I mentioned there's sort of three dates that the book centers around. And the one that I write about in the author's note was January 6, 2021, which was of course the day that there was the storming of the Capitol in the United States. And I was living in, in Washington DC at the time. My daughter was about nine months old and I'm someone who's always been very politically active. I've volunteered on campaigns. I've knocked on doors. I phone called, like I read the news every day. And so there's there's always been a part of me that's like very aware of current events and some of the the things that were happening in the U.S. that led up to that time that were making me very nervous because they they felt a little bit similar to pre-revolution Egypt. Things like censorship and propaganda and the polarization of society and the very different ways that people saw the same event. These were all things that were very concerning to me. But the, the that day, that was really the day that I decided I wanted to put my story into a book. And it's something I had thought about for a long time. But until I watched those events on my screen with my daughter on my lap, I think it was easy to just believe that what was going on would never get serious enough to in the way that things got serious enough in Egypt in the lead up to the Egyptian revolution in 2011, which is when I was living in Cairo. And obviously the Egyptian revolution and the insurrection were very different things. The revolution was around about a group of people very large group of people eventually wanting democracy, and in, at least in my view, January 6, 2021 was about the opposite thing, which was people trying to get rid of democracy. However, I think in both instances, the, the US and Egypt were going through an inflection point in which direction their country was going to go. Whether you were going to, in the US's case, continue to go down a democratic path, or to go in a very different direction. And I have lived in a country that went in a very different direction in Egypt. And I can tell you that living in a country like that, that does not have freedom of speech, that does not have upward mobility, that doesn't have the kind of opportunity that people can at least hope to have, if not actually obtain, is a very difficult place to live. And that day, I I had this fear that I think was, and I keep mentioning my daughter because I, my experience becoming a parent, maybe especially during COVID is that things that might not have seemed as scary before becoming a parent just seemed so much scarier with her. And I think I had this very real fear that we were about to go in a really scary direction. And as a new parent, I also didn't have a lot of time to knock on doors or make phone calls. But uh, I did somehow find the time to write a book, which is a bit of my uh, contribution, if you will, to trying to help people understand how fragile democracy is, how important it is to keep, and how we can't keep our—we uh, have to keep our eye on the ball all the time.
1: Yeah, I agree with you a 100- hundred thousand percent
2: <laughs> good otherwise uh you might be ending the interview very quickly if not so <laughs> I'm glad we're in agreement on that one
1: and you have a toddler a baby no it's not a baby
2: she's a toddler she thinks she's a baby she'll always yeah. be my baby so we can call her a baby <laughs> yeah, I agree yeah. she'll be your baby
1: forever my daughter is 24 years old and still it's a baby my baby exactly.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Yes, as I said, maybe probably you have barely enough time to think or sleep. But you mentioned a goal of yours is to create a platform to be able to talk about democracy, as you were telling us right now, women's rights and intercultural dialogue. Why are these important issues
2: for you? Absolutely. So the democracy one, again, I think it's it's having lived in a country that didn't have it. And I think also seeing how close Egypt came to having one, how much blood, sweat, tears and opportunity people expended in order to try to obtain it. And I think when I think about the sacrifices that people I know that were in Egypt made to try to get that kind of democracy and still ended up falling short, It it sort of pains me to think about how much opportunity we have in America, and and I think a lot of people take it for granted and don't realize it. Now, on the other hand, I also think we have a lot more progress that we can make as a country, both in terms of democracy, but also in terms of social equity. And the reason the book is called Not There Yet is because I think as a a country, as as America, We're not there yet in terms of a place where Egypt was before the Egyptian revolution, which is a place of not having democracy or freedom. But at the same time, we are also not there yet in my view on where we could or should be as a country either. So we have to decide as a country, which way we want to go and I would um, hope that most people would choose the path of greater democracy instead of less democracy and opportunity. So we have work to do on ourselves. Women's rights. I mean, I talk about, I, I spent a couple of chapters in the book, which were, I think for a lot of reasons that the hardest two chapters to write about sexual harassment. And I talk about the very courageous and brave Egyptian women who, you know, far predate the Me Too movement, who were active in trying to raise awareness about the scourge of sexual harassment, specifically on the street in Cairo, and who were, again, being very courageous in both naming themselves, trying to prosecute men um, for you know sexual harassment and assault, and also continually trying to push for new legal uh, rights to be able to go after men Uh, who perpetrated those kinds of crimes. And that conversation was really coming to a head around the time that I moved there. And then I also talk about my personal experience with sexual harassment, having been harassed almost on a daily basis uh, when I lived in Cairo. And, And so I think that what I saw from that experience is, I mean, one, obviously sexual harassment and assault is very serious and should be taken seriously. So, you know, hashtag believe women. Um, but also the thing that I sort of extrapolated, which I think is more, uh, is, is broadly relevant, no matter where you are, is that whether it is the small dig in the workplace or whether it is the other side of the spe- spectrum, which is, you know, assault and rape, those all contribute to making women feel like they cannot be part of the conversation. Like they do not have a place in society or the boardroom or the the street in some instances or the university. And so I felt like it was really important to try to have a place to talk about that. Not because, you know, Egypt was so far off from America, but because we all have a lot of work to do around the world. And there are a lot of women who oftentimes don't get the sort of national media attention or like, you know, international bestseller books or anything that are doing the hard work every single day. And I think that it's really important for us to recognize that work, but also to uplift those voices and to and to be able to talk about the importance of having everyone have a seat at the table.
1: Yeah. And you see, Iran, how things are going there, they reached to a point that they can't live like this anymore.
2: Absolutely, yeah, there's so many examples, Iran, Afghanistan, but but also here in the US. And I think that that's one of the things that I want to be able to talk about is that it is, I think sometimes easy to look at the most extreme examples of gender-based violence and say, well, that's really bad, we're really lucky to not have it as bad as that. And that is true. We, we are lucky to not have it. Like we're able to go to university. We're able to vote. We're able to own property. I mean, for sure. However, I also think that sometimes it allows us to, excuse or ignore our own challenges in our backyard. And I do think that we are all sort of part of this global conversation. It's just that we're all in very different places about wh- what that conversation looks like and what those rights are. And so I think part of the book is to, in those chapters particularly, is to try to have people feel like, hey, this is in Egypt, a place that I might have some preconceived notions about because of you know the media, the way Middle Eastern culture is portrayed in movies but actually these things feel kind of similar to things that I might read about in the United States. And that is like one of the things I try to do throughout the book is to make these very hopefully subtle but like real parallels between different components of what I experience in Egypt but what I think are similar kinds of challenges that we face in America as well. When you publish
1: anything just come here come <laughs>
2: I I will (laughs) say the word
1: about your work. Thank you. So important. And Catherine, would you like to leave a message to our listeners today?
2: Sure. I think I would say. I mean, first, I hope you pick up my book. It is available on Amazon in Kindle and hard copy. And I think you know there's. Some, I think probably something in it for everyone. There's a little bit of romance. I talk about the story of my, as you said, my, my husband and I meeting in a lot more detail. It's a little bit of a coming of age story about how I was a 14 year old in a small little town in Florida. And I ended up, like you said, in Egypt. Um, there's a little bit of an adventure through the Egyptian revolution and there's a lot of self-reflection and you know, connection making to current day. And I would like to believe at least and I think I've had some validation from people who've read the book that there's some humor uh, intertwined in, in the middle of all these very serious topics. Mm-hmm. So um, I hope people pick up the book and and get something from it. I think there's enough in there that probably most people will get something out of it even if it's um, a little different than some of the message I've talked about today.
1: I'm super curious about your book. I will check it out. Yeah. And where can our listeners find you and your books? your book, sorry.
2: One book for now. Uh, <laughs> this was a really big undertaking. And I think I'm going to think very carefully before writing my next book. Um, but they can find me on Instagram at Catherine Manfree or on LinkedIn, also at C- Catherine Manfree or at CatherineManfree.com. Um, I try to uh, only be on a couple social media platforms because between a full-time job, baby, And life. uh, Frankly, I feel like I will spend much too much time on social media if I do more than those two. So they can find me on either of those places. Wonderful. And your book is it's a memoir, but it's a
1: wonderful way to help people. That is
2: my hope. That is my hope.
1: It's not only about you, it's about others.
2: Yeah, that, that is a really great way of putting it. I, like you said, it is a memoir because it is about my life, but at the same time, I very much wrote the book to be like one part memoir, one part history, and, and one part, you know, I'm not sure what they write term is even but like democracy self-help if that's a genre that exists um you know and at, at the end of the day i think you know you asked me takeaways from the book i mean the other thing that i hope really comes through is you know egypt and the middle east is just a phenomenally interesting and inviting and hospitable culture i think you know our media and and movie and film industry often does not do justice to how incredible a culture it really is There's so much history in Egypt itself, but there's so much history in so many other countries in the Middle East. And I hope people come away from the book saying, hey, like Cairo might be a place that I want to put on my next list of places to go in 2023, because that is just an incredible country. There's so much to learn and the people are so incredible. And so I hope that I've at least helped to humanize a little bit of what it's like to live in a very different country like Egypt.
1: Yeah, I'll never forget the kindness of the people there. I went to Egypt once, the food and the beauty of those places. It makes me sad to think that some may have an inaccurate representation of that area of the world. So you will be featured on our magazine, The Relatable Voice. So our listeners will be able to see you, to read a little bit more about you. And of course, they will have the link for your website. Great.
2: Great. Thank you so much.
1: Of course. I'm super happy to be here in Washington. I think I'm going to visit some museums today.
2: (laughs) So many museums. It's also a beautiful day today in Washington, D.C. And yes, I mean, we didn't even talk about Washington, D.C., but there are so many things to do in Mm D.C. I think another very misunderstood, misaligned city uh, in the national media, it is... uh, you know, my husband and I have lived many places. Neither of us is from here originally. And we love Washington, DC. We just think it is like one of the best places to live. So yes, I'm so glad that you, you know, visited me today in DC.
1: Yes. And I love DC. I love (laughs) it. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening, and remember, relationships don't exist, relating does. Until next time...